0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Crush Course, the podcast for the wine curious. I'm your host, Sarah, coming to you from Sonoma Valley, California, and this week, life is the bubbles. That's right, we have finally made it to our third and final installment in the fermentation series, so that means we are talking about sparkling wine fermentation. To make sparkling wine, we actually have to go through two fermentations. The first converts sugar to alcohol and the second will create the bubbles. Double the fermentation, double the fun. So let's get to it shall we? I haven't talked much about my job yet but I actually work at a sparkling wine facility in northern Sonoma county. I say wine facility and not winery because we not only make our own sparkling wine but we also help smaller wineries that don't have the space or the funds for the specialized equipment to produce sparkling wine in the wine industry we call this a custom crush facility we have all the tools the people and the tanks and the clients will enlist our help to transform their grapes into wine according to their specific instructions and style preference it's a really cool opportunity to see a wide variety of winemaking styles all under one roof like i said To make sparkling wine, we have the juice go through two fermentations. The first fermentation, where we take the juice and make our base wine, is the same as what I discussed last week with white and rosé fermentation, but I'm going to go through a quick review before we move on to the secondary fermentation. Just as before, we take our white or red grapes and press them into juice. We then add a little bit of sulfur and dry ice to keep the juice from turning color or oxidizing. We settle out the solids from the juice by chilling the tank and letting all the solids fall to the bottom while the juice is clean and clear above it. We rack this juice off, keeping only some solids to provide a nutritional boost for our yeast. For sparkling base wine fermentation vessels, we typically ferment in stainless steel or concrete tanks. As you will see later, it won't make much sense to divvy up the volume of juice into smaller vessels to just bring it all back together. And we typically won't ferment in wood tanks because with sparkling, we are going for that bright, crisp acidity and more fruit character. If a winemaker does choose to do this first fermentation in oak, it typically is targeting a more luscious, richer style of sparkling wine. For instance, uh, Schramsberg in Napa Valley ferments up to 25% of its base wine in oak. So we rehydrate our yeast and kick off the first fermentation. Since we are doing this whole process in two parts, we typically see fruit for sparkling wine come in at around 17 to 20 bricks. So we will be harvesting this before any other fruit for the season. When the first fermentation is complete, we will be somewhere around 9 to 11% alcohol. This is crucial because of how alcohol is actually toxic to yeast in high concentrations. They actually won't survive if we get too high during the second fermentation. Anything above 12% alcohol, it'll be difficult for that second fermentation to finish. We rack the finished wine off of the gross leaves, all the remains of our dead yeast cells, and deposit the finished wine into a new vessel. Last time, we talked about malolactic fermentation. In case you forgot, this is when bacteria metabolize malic acid into lactic acid, green apple acid to yogurt acid, essentially. If a winemaker wants to do this with their wine, now is the time to do it, in between the two alcoholic fermentations. I would say that it's not very common with California sparkling wine. We actually only have one client who does this intentionally. Again, this is totally up to the winemaker whether or not they want to do this. If a winemaker wants to complete any other additions, fining, or stability activities, this is the time. It's really important that we button up all the details of the base wine before proceeding to the next step. So we have our finished base wine. Step one is complete. A quick note about what sorts of wine grapes we can use for sparkling wine. Although some regions very tightly restrict what kinds of grapes can be used for their bubbles, in New World wine regions, like here in California, we can actually use any kind we like to make white, rosé, or even red sparkling. Red sparkling wine isn't as common here in the States, but very popular in Australia and very tasty. When we see a bottle of sparkling wine, the label can give us clues as to what grapes were used. If it says Blanc de Blancs, this means that it is made from white grapes. If it says Blanc de Noir, this means that we were using red grapes and the juice was pressed off the fruit before the first fermentation. This will be different from a rosé. Blanc de Noir literally translates to white from red, and a rosé will intentionally have more skin extraction, so more color in the finished wine. Once the base wine is done, we are going to be making something called a liqueur tirage. As we all know, yeast are necessary to metabolize sugars to ethanol, and we also know that they produce carbon dioxide during this fermentation. We are going to bring our yeasty boys in once again for our second fermentation, this time focusing more on producing those lovely bubbles. We start out the same as before. We rehydrate the yeast with hot water and nutrients. However, instead of using juice to build up the volume, we are actually going to be using diluted wine at this next step. From my experience, this wine is usually from a previous vintage that wasn't bottled. We keep a volume back each year to prepare for the next year's production. We dilute the wine with water to lower the alcohol content and make it more hospitable for the yeast. Over the course of a week, we build up the volume of this yeast mixture depending on how much we'll need for our base wine, making sure that the chemistry is right and the yeast are happy and reproducing. Before we can introduce this liqueur d'étourage into the base wine, we have to do a little bit of sugar adjustment. Since it has already been fermented, there's barely any sugar left in the base wine. So we just have to add a little bit of juice concentrate to give the yeast something to munch on. Usually the time between the end of the first fermentation and the start of the second isn't too long. For us, it's just a matter of scheduling, but usually within a few months of finishing this first fermentation, we will start the second. Now, we bring in the bubbles. How do we do this? Well, there's actually a few different options here. In sparkling, you can achieve the bubbles by one of several methods. The Charmat method, or tank method, is one of the less expensive methods and has a large volume of the base wine undergo the second fermentation in a pressurized tank. We then have to filter the spent leaves out of the wine, all while keeping it pressurized to preserve the bubbles. Then there's the transfer method. For this, we do the second fermentation in a bottle. Then when it's complete, we dump all the bottles into a pressurized tank, filter off the leaves, and then put the wine back into new bottles. We also have continuous method and plain old carbonation, almost like a soda stream, but neither of these is all that common according to my research. The final method is the traditional method which is what we use at my job and is the same as what they use in Champagne. So it's also sometimes known as method Champenois. This is generally believed to produce the highest quality, most complex sparkling wines in comparison with other methods. When comparing the different methods for secondary fermentation, it's a big question of style, economics, and the space the winery is working with. But from a sensory perspective, the different methods can really make an impact on the finished wine. For instance, using the Charmat method makes for a fresher wine, which is why it's often used for Prosecco. But it also has a little bit more lees contact. Translation, more yeasty flavor in the secondary fermentation. The biggest difference to me is the size and the texture of the bubbles. Texture in bubbles? Yes, that's right. For those of you out there who are seltzer and sparkling water connoisseurs, I have a good comparison for you. So you know how LaCroix, pardon me if I'm totally saying that wrong, is super smooth and it almost feels like the bubbles are smaller and gentler on your tongue, but then you drink some generic supermarket bubbles and when you drink it, it's kind of harsh and stings your throat a little bit when you take too big a sip? No, just me. Apparently, I pay way too much attention to my sparkling water. Those sensations are all due to the nature of the carbonation. So think of sparkling wine made with the traditional method as the la of this situation. The bubbles are smaller, and so when you drink the wine, they gently fizzle and pop on your tongue, almost more like a tickle, whereas sparkling made with the other methods is a bit more like generic. Large bubbles, a little bit more of that harshness on the palate. So everything going forward is going to be specific to the traditional method, as that's what I'm most familiar with. Plus, I think it's the best way to make sparkling wine. We have the base wine, now with just a pinch of sweetness, and the La Cour de Tourage. And we bring these together during the process called, well, tirage. This is essentially a bottling line with just one extra special step at the end. We fill the glass bottles up with our base wine, and then add in a dose of the liqueur de Tourage. Then we cap the bottles with a bedouel, a small plastic upside down cup in the neck of the bottle. Then we top it off with a crown cap. Crown caps are what we most commonly see on beer bottles. These bottles are then collected and stacked in metal cages where they will be stored in a cool warehouse and go through their second fermentation. We can't check these bottles as easily as we check tanks or other vessels during a typical fermentation. Instead, we do weekly checks to record the temperature the pressure and the residual sugar. We have to reach a certain pressure and get below a certain sugar level and then the secondary fermentation is complete. At this point, winemakers can choose to move on to the next step immediately or to let the wine age in the bottle in contact with those leaves. Many European styles have requirements about the minimum aging time to be considered a sparkling wine of the region. By allowing the wine to age on the lees, we get more texture and complexity on the palate. Once the winemaker is satisfied with the wine, we have to remove the spent lees. But the lees are all mixed up within the wine in the bottle. So the bottles undergo this process called riddling. In the past, and even today in smaller sparkling houses, this is done by hand on wooden racks. But we have these really awesome, really massive machines that do it for us. Basically, when we riddle, we are slowly tilting and turning the bottle to collect all the lees and that plastic bedule in the neck. We don't want to rush this. It can take a long time for all those tiny little particles to settle out. The next step for our little bottles is disgorging, which will include removing the lees and finishing the bottles for packaging and distribution. But before we get to that, we need to make the dosage. This is going to be a syrup made of water or wine, sugar, and sulfur that we add to the bottle during disgorging. The sugar is meant to round out the palate and finish off the wine, while the sulfur is meant to preserve the wine in the bottle. We go through loads of trials trying to figure out how much sugar and sulfur we want to add, and this can vary wildly based on what we're making. Sometimes the winemaker is more concerned with making the wine sweet. Sometimes they want it bone-dry, and sometimes they want to add a blueberry-flavored syrup. Yeah, that wine just smelled like blueberry pancakes. It was, it was weird. Would not recommend blueberry sparkling. And then there's a new trend called 0 dosage, where after they remove the yeast, they choose not to add any additional sugar at all. Once we have all the leaves settled into the bedule, we will gently load those bottles onto our disgorging line. The first step here is submerging the necks of the bottles in liquid nitrogen. This freezes the neck of the bottle. And what's in the neck of the bottle? The spent and riddled lees. This is just to ensure that when we flip the bottle over in the next step, we don't risk agitating the lees and having them all fall back into the wine. The bottles are each turned, so they're standing upright. And then we pop the bottles. When we do this, the accumulated carbonation forces the frozen lees, as well as the bedule, to pop off the top of the bottle. And let me just say, I am very glad that this is automated, because the times I have had to freeze and disgorge bottles by hand have sent my nerves on edge. It's as close to shooting a gun as I have ever or will ever get. After we pop the bottles and get the lees ice bullet out, we add in our dosage put in a new cork, and twist on the cage. It's slipped again to mix all the dosage up in the wine, then it's off to be labeled, packaged, and shipped to store. I love talking about sparkling. It's easily my favorite subsector of winemaking that I've worked in. Like I said, double the fermentation, double the fun. Before we get to our wine of the week, I wanted to talk a little bit about the different types of sparkling wine that we have around the world. First things first, Not all sparkling wine is Champagne, so please stop calling any sort of sparkling wine Champagne. I don't have a lot of pet peeves when it comes to wine, but this is a big one for me. Champagne is sparkling wine made in the Champagne region of France. It is the only wine they produce, and only producers in that region are legally allowed to call their wine Champagne. This is true not only for champagne, but all the styles of sparkling wine in Europe. Cava is a Spanish sparkling wine made in the Catalunya region outside of Barcelona. Sect is a sweeter sparkling wine from Germany, and Prosecco is only produced in Italy. Not only do these names tell us where the sparkling wine is produced, but also the regional grape varietals used. For instance, champagne has to be made from Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier, Chardonnay, or a combination of some of these varietals, whereas Asti Spumanti from Italy will be made solely with Moscato grapes. Each region has its own styles and legal guidelines, but individual producers can choose to interpret it how they like in terms of sweetness, aging, and other sensory characteristics within these rules. When a wine doesn't fall into any of these categories, we name them more generally. For instance, any sparkling wine made in France outside of Champagne is called a Cremant and then lists the region after. For example, Cremant de Loire. In California and most New World regions, we simply state the production region and then sparkling wine. I wanted to let you guys in on a few tips for the next time you are hunting for a bottle of bubbles. If you are keen on crisp, acid-driven sparkling, look for a non-vintage Champagne or a cava, or any sparkling wine labeled as brute or extra brute. These are indicators that the wine will be bone dry and have little residual sugar from that dosage we added earlier. If you prefer something sweeter, keep an eye out for words like demisec or do, spelled D-O-U-X. Although fair warning, these will be very sweet. Wines that are typically on the sweetest end of the spectrum will be Osti Spumanti and other Italian sparkling not marked as Brut. If you want a dry sparkling but want more of that fruity, floral character rather than citrus minerality, check out a Brut Prosecco or perhaps a Sect from Germany or Austria. My personal go-tos are Cava, California sparkling, and non-vintage champagne because I love more of that acidity and crispness in my sparkling. Have you ever been a bit anxious about opening a bottle of sparkling wine? I certainly have. For a long time, I would duck and cover whenever someone took the cage off the top of a bottle and started twisting. But over time, I got way more comfortable with it. Like a lot of things, it comes with practice. But here are a few tips to make the next time all the easier. So the most important thing when opening a bottle of bubbly is all in the preparation. Make sure you put the bottle in the fridge well before you plan on opening it. It will be ready when it is icy to the touch and it has formed a thin layer of condensation. Pressure, and the pressure within the bottle, is actually affected by temperature. If we chill the bottle, we lessen the pressure, lessening the chance that the cork will go flying and the wine will all gush out, and we can't be wasting any bubbly. Once it is properly chilled, you'll want to take off the wrapper and the cage and then put a towel over the cork, both to give more grip and to catch it if it does pop off wildly. Then, very gently, begin to twist the bottle, not the cork. You will feel the cork start to turn and a bit of pressure from within the bottle. Keep on turning the bottle until you hear that delightful pop. And voila! Wasn't that easy. If you've done everything correctly, the pop will be less of a pop, and more, as they say in the industry, a nun's fart. Their metaphor, not mine. This week's Wine of the Week is a little bit different because it's not a particular wine, but a whole category of sparkling, and that's Petnat. Oftentimes called the ancestral method, nat is considered to be the original and oldest existing iteration of sparkling wine, Unlike the methods we discussed earlier, Petnat has just one fermentation. We start the wine in tank and ferment as usual, then with just a little bit of sugar left, we bottle the wine so that last bit of fermentation actually occurs in the bottle, creating carbonation. Some winemakers may choose to filter the finished wine, but all of the Petnat that I've had has been left unfiltered, and I think that just adds to its charm. Petnats are usually lower in alcohol and a bit sweeter and softer than double fermentation sparkling, and the extra time on the leaves in bottle creates a deliciously full and luscious mouthfeel. It's simple and rustic, but oh, so fabulous. So if you ever see nat in the local bottle shop, now you know. And I highly encourage you to grab a bottle and try it out for yourself. And that's it. We are officially done with fermentation, well, at least for now. As I said before, we will no doubt be going into more detail for specific regions and styles, but I will let you guys have a well-deserved break from all the chemistry and biology. Next week, I'm going to teach you guys how to taste wine. It doesn't seem that hard and yet is intimidating all at the same time. We will learn about the senses and go into how to taste, smell, and examine a wine, and how to describe it so that you can find more of the wines you like. I want to give a huge shout out to my copy editor, Danielle. With the exception of sparkling, it's been quite a few years since I've gotten my hands dirty in a cellar, so I was, no surprise, a bit rusty when writing these last few episodes. She is the fermentation queen. And I could not have finished this series without her. I'm Sarah, and this has been your Crush Course on Sparkling Fermentation. Until next time, cheers! Now scooch! I said scooch!